Blog Talk Radio. Hello, you are listening to NHN Radio, where horses have a voice. Brought to you by Natural Horse Network and Simply NHN. This is DC, your host. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Dan Moore, the natural horse vet. We will be talking about some common issues that come up with horse owners, as well as nutrition, and answer some questions from you, our listeners. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, welcome, Dr. Dan. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be on the show with you tonight. Looking forward to it. We're thrilled to have you on the show And welcome all our listeners, and we'll get started by talking about a real common issue. I get a lot of questions about what should I feed my horse, whether my horse is overweight or whether my horse is... I got this the other day, that their horse was on the scale of two. Um, So I think those are two separate issues, overweight and starved horses. But let's talk in general, what should you feed your horse? Well, it's funny that you get so many questions like that because that's probably the number one question I get, too. And it's so critical today that we really uh, explore feeding our horses because our horses just aren't getting what they need, as far as I'm concerned, from a commercial viewpoint anyway. Um, I can go into that a little bit if you'd like for me to. I would like for you to because I know that a lot of people rely on the commercial feeds, but... As far as I'm concerned, they're they're lacking a lot. They've got a lot of byproducts, and they're cooked. So well, yeah, I'll many let of them are. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. Um, you know, they're pelleted. Many of them are pellets, and I just I just have a problem with pellets in general because first of all, I don't know any horse in the wild that eats anything that's cooked. And the way these pellets are made is they put them in this big giant cooker. A big, huge machine called an extruder that has uh, temperatures that are in the thousands of degrees, so all the ingredients are actually cooked and mixed and high-heated, so I'm sure that destroys a lot of the enzymes and a lot of the goody within the food. And then it's squeezed out the end like a big sausage uh, press and made in, and chopped into pellets. So, uh, you know, that's not good in itself as far as I'm concerned. Of course, you can, um, you know, put a lot of different stuff in there, a lot of stuff they don't need, and that's probably one of the things we need to talk about in just a minute. Don't let me forget to mention hydrogenated fats. Uh, okay. But let's just let's just look at feed in general, commercial feeds. Uh, if you have several horses, I'm sure that um, you'll agree that some eat a little and some eat a lot. You know, some are easy keepers and some are hard keepers, and and then there's a lot in between. The biggest problem that I see for all horses with a typical commercial type diet is that um, unless you have that ideal horse, your horse is either getting too little or too much of all the goody that was added to the grains. In other words, all commercial feeds are supplemented with something, you know, the vitamins, minerals, enzymes, and so on. But And if you have a horse that's, say, a 1,000 pounds, uh, and that bag says that that 1,000-pound horse should eat five pounds a day, 
then if he eats that five pounds a day, he's going to get all the stuff that was added, all the vitamins, minerals, and enzymes, and so on. So let's say on the low end, you have that easy keeper that only eats one pound a day, which is you know, not uncommon. You have an easy keeper, you cut back on their food. Well, that easy keeper, only getting one pound a day, is going to be getting one-fifth of all those vitamins, minerals, enzymes, whatever was added to that mixture. And so that negatively affects the metabolism even more because they're not getting all the extra goodies and they, even, they can even become more of an easy keeper. Um, does, does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And then on the other end, you've got a hard keeper that might need 10 pounds a day. So he's getting much more of the vitamins, minerals, and enzymes that are added to that feed because he's just simply eating more of the grain. So uh, what we found that works better and is the most natural um, type ingredient that, or grain that we found is oats. And there's a lot of misconceptions about oats, but one thing is they're pretty easy to balance as far as vitamins, minerals, and enzymes. That's one reason we like them. Another reason is there, there are uh, they're seed heads, which is something that horses, you know, could get in the wild, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you say oats, are you are you talking about whole oats or, um, you know, seed print? oats? Is there does right. it matter? That's the number two question I get. <laughs> You're oh, right okay. on target. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. The thing about uh, it really doesn't matter. What does matter is that. Um, once the hull is broken, whether it's by rolling or crimping or whatever method, uh, they actually will start to break down. They'll actually start to go rancid. Now, once they're once the hull's broken, once they're crimped, they are a little bit more efficient as far as digestibility. The books say about six percent more efficient, but there is a trade-off there because crimped compared to whole oats aren't going to last as long. And you know, sitting in the feed room and so on. Mm-hmm. So that we we just typically recommend whole oats unless you can get them fresh crimped on the farm, which is used to be the way it is. They actually crimp them right on the farm for you. And there are some smaller feed mills around that will, you know, crimp them fresh uh, or roll them. It doesn't matter either way. It's just that you want to use them up in a couple weeks, uh, two, three, four weeks at the most, if you crack that hull. Now there is what's called a steamed crimped oat that um, most of the companies they, they they're referring to not really crimping just a washing with steam and mm-hmm. it's not really cooked or anything it's just nice clean oats and those are very readily available as far as uh, feed stores goes many of the big companies have steamed crimped oats but they're really not even crimped they're just washing steam so those are fine. Um, and then you have holus oats. Um, those are fine too. Um, understand that you're you're getting rid of some of the fiber when you get rid of the hull, so that makes them a little. Um, I mean, that fiber is good for them. Mm-hmm. But, um, they, if you read the label, they have a little higher protein, a little higher fat, but it's just because they don't have the hull. So well, I've never really figured out why you'd pay extra for that to take I, the hull off. And I'd like to know. Also, someone asked this in the chat room. Why would someone even need to crimp an oat? Do you know you that? Don't. You don't really. That's what I'm saying. They're only okay. 6% more efficient anyway than a whole oat. 
I mean, a horse that has a good digestion system is going to break them down fine. Um, the key there to understand about feeding oats and it is that oats themselves are not complete, just like corn is not complete, which I never recommend for a horse, but right. there's no grain that's complete anymore as far as the, the mineral content, the vitamin content. Our soils are just so deficient. They're so depleted of minerals. And certainly vitamins, are, they're, just, they're just not there like they, minerals like they used to be and have been depleted for many, many years. So whatever you feed, you have to add the vitamins, minerals, and enzymes and so on back to it. And you have to add a fat source to it. Right, okay. And I hear, well, where do they get fat in the wild? Well, they get it from seed heads. Seeds have fat. So the beauty of feeding oats is you can take a horse that's an easy keeper and just give them a little bit and add the vitamin mineral enzyme supplement right on top and add a good source of fat right on top. And, you know, people, when you think of adding fat, it scares them a little bit because they have a fat horse. And the last thing they want to do is add more fat. But you have to have good fat to burn fat. And fat fat is so important to the diet because every cell in the body is surrounded by fat. Our nervous system is surrounded. the, 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 The nervous system itself is mostly fat. And it's just a critical part of our diet that is being forgotten and totally ignored, in my opinion, as far as the um, commercial feed business because what they're using for fat is these hydrogenated, that's right, hydrogenated processed fat, like margarine. And we were all told on the, (laughs) yeah, that margarine's good for us. It's not. It's what part of the problem with our obese America. And it's the big part of the problem these hydrogenated fats are a big part of the problem of these overweight or metabolic issues in, in our in our horses today, which you know leads to laminitis, cushions, and everything else. It's kind of very similar syndrome there. But these the the reason the commercial uh, feed manufacturers use these fats is because they don't have a lot of choice. It's because like our own food chain. They have to have a product that can sit on a shelf or can sit in a feed room or sit in a store for a long period of time and not go rancid, not bad. And the hydrogenated fats are very stable as far as heat goes, but unfortunately they're kind of like plastic, just like margarine. So we're literally feeding our horses plastic and creating a terrible, healthy, unhealthy situation for the horse by doing so just like for us. I could go into that more as far as the cell and all that, but it might be boring to some folks. But just understand, if you have a fat horse, one thing they might be missing is good fats in their diet, same way with people. So let's talk about what are some of the good fats. And probably corn oil is not one of them. Exactly. Corn oil is It's a common... We recommended oil to put mm-hmm. weight on a horse. In fact, yeah. um, you know, it's all they even taught us about in veterinary school or mentioned in veterinary school is corn oil. You know, if you have a horse that looks a little bad, give them a little corn oil. Yeah. And and it will make them shine and look better. But again, it's just not a good fat for a horse. And and most of them are hydrogenated. And and another most other oils are also 
um, besides hydrogenated, they're actually um, processed in some other way, or all the goodies just filtered out of them and sold somewhere else. So you want to stay away from your cheap oils or cheap fats. Um, for instance, um, if you have a crude, unrefined, unprocessed fat, a cold process, in other words, they're literally just squeezing the seed to get the oil out of it, whatever the source is, that's a good fat. Because in those oils, you still have your uh, what, what we call phospholipids. Mm -hmm. um, we still have our natural vitamin E's instead of, you know, it being filtered out and sold somewhere else, it's still in there. Phospholipids, instead of being filtered out and sold somewhere else, it's still in there. Lecithin is, is great for the cardiovascular system for circulation, is still in there. And we could go on and on. But phospholipids are a part of that cellular membrane. And when I talk about a cell, imagine there being trillions of cells in the body and just picture them looking like a basketball. And the skin of the basketball, the outer layer of the basketball, is primarily fat that allows the nutrients to go into the cells and the waste products to go out of the cells and, and away in through the bloodstream and so on. Uh, it's just super important. And if you look at those cells, they're actually vibrating. They're living, you know, bringing the nutrients in. And if, if you look at a cell that, that uh, had hydrogenated fat, um, and I've never actually seen one under a microscope myself, but what I understand they look like is those cells, instead of vibrating, um, are dead. They're just mm. like, like plastic. And yeah. instead of being lined up normally, they're like cross ties. They're just all jumbled. I mean, they're all jumbled up like cross ties jumped out of a truck instead of lined up to haul a train. So they are important, to say the well, least. And, and the type of fats, that was your question. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, what we use and what we found is the best and gives us very consistent results is is soybean, soybean crude, unrefined, unprocessed soybean oil, and that's what great for. Um, just a, a little more information on that. We've actually um, now have a genetically modified free um, version as well. And you know, I I didn't, I wasn't real educated on that aspect of you know genetic modification like I should have been, you know, eight ten years ago. And I resisted finding a source of genetically modified free oil. And finally, I had so many, you know, every month, every two weeks, I'd have somebody ask, well, can you, do you have one? Because what, what we had was good, but I couldn't say, couldn't certify that it was free. And so, but make a long story short, I finally found the source and it took me about two years. And we started using it with skepticism. And believe it or not, it's actually given us a little better results than our other oil. So I'm excited to have that now, too. So we use soybean oil. There's other sources of fat. Flax is one of them. Um, flax is, is okay. I'm not, the only reason I'm not as fond of flax is, again, it has a tendency to go rancid quickly. So if you have flax in a bag that's already ground, well, right. you, know, you already have that degradation process going on there. Mm -hmm. And to back up just a little bit, Dr. Dan, um, a lot of people have mentioned to me, well, oats are not good or not safe or not healthy. 
If you have a horse, an IR horse. So what would you like to say about that? Yeah, that's a that's a biggie. That's a, mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell you, you are so in tune to the horse industry because <laughs> it is that is a very common one. Yeah. Um, a lot of misconceptions about oats. Let me just start out by saying that finally, oats were recommended by the National Research Council. I believe they came out with their new studies just last year. Might have been the year before, but they hadn't updated since like 1987, and that's just a whole bunch of. Um, you know, it's a group that that figures out what they need to recommend as a group for feeding. And their recommendation was that oats should be the staple diet of a horse. Okay, that's so that's important mm-hmm. to some degree. Bottom line is they give us the results. But one thing that's that's so unique about oats is they're not um, they're broken down in the latter part of the gut unlike any other grain. So you don't have the gas issues like you're going to have um, and lactic acid and all the other issues in the gut, colic potential like you're going to have with other grains. Like corn, for instance, has the same glycemic index as sugar. In other words, a tablespoon of corn has the same effect on the body as a tablespoon of sugar, as would molasses, for instance. They're both sugar. Right. Right. So we try to stay away from corn. But uh, oats, uh, so they're digested in the proper part of the gut. They are. They don't make them hot. I mean, I have thousands and thousands of horses on oats, and yeah, if you give them, you know, uh, a lot of oats, they're going to be hot. If you give them a lot of grain of any kind, they would have, they would have a tendency to be hot. But as a whole, uh, oats don't make them hot if the horse is getting the amount that that horse needs. The typical recommendation as far as the, the industry says 1% of the body weight per day. So a 1,000-pound horse will get 10 pounds of oats. That's what the books say. But I, mm-hmm. that's a lot of oats. I was going to say, most, that's a lot of oats. That's a lot of oats. You know, I mean, yeah. we have horses that eat a hand, half a handful. And really, you know, the only reason we're using them is to kind of get the other supplements down anyway, unless mm-hmm. you have a horse that needs the extra energy, the extra protein, and so I mean, oats do have pretty good protein. They'll vary between eight and ten percent, uh, actually between eight and twelve. And then the hullus is going to be higher again because they're missing the hull. But um, so it's a, it's a good source of protein. It's a good source of energy. It's a good source of fat. It's more sustainable energy, in other words, than corn or any of the other grains that I know of. And if you add the oil to it. It even slows the digestion down even more. So, I mean, we just don't have hot horses from oats. And these metabolic issues, your, you know, your Cushing's, your insulin resistance, um, all the, the carb situations, you know, I, we give them oats. And, and as it, they tend to do so much better with just oats because what I found with the low-carb type diets, your commercial diets, well, mm-hmm. they have high fat to replace the carbs, okay, because fat's better than carbs. They have high fat, but guess what the fat is in those car in those low carb diets? It's hydrogenated. Exactly. Hydrogenated. <laughs> I mean, you're defeating the purpose by using them. So we go back to oats, whatever amount of oats your horse needs, an easy keeper a little bit, a hard keeper more, an average horse you know, just it's an art to feeding, not a science, truly. 
You give right. your horse whatever amount of oats it needs, and then you add the supplements right on top, and you add the oil right on top, and the source of fat, and that's the diet, except for hay or grass. And then the other issue that's critical is loose, salt. free choice, salt and mineral. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. No salt blocks. No salt blocks. Right. Uh, they wish they would outlaw them for horses. They're not even, they shouldn't even be feeding them to cows. You know, I mean, at least cows are liquors, horses aren't, and they can get a little more goody from them, but a horse just can't get what he needs from a block. And, and in my opinion, cows can't either. Uh, they, blocks are just a convenient way to, um, I don't know, I guess make the owners feel good, but they're not doing the horses any good at all. <laughs> I think you're and right could, there. Yeah, and, you know, you wait, they're wasted anyway because most of the time the rain washes them away very quickly. Yeah. And the red blocks, the red mineral blocks, mm-hmm. the iron oxide that makes them red, if they didn't use a dye, uh, the iron oxide that makes them red actually prevents the other trace minerals from being utilized anyway. So they're, so they're really a waste. A total waste um, of money. So I hope you're all listening, people. No more salt blocks. Single so, most healthy you can do for your horse, in my opinion, is to throw away your salt blocks and replace them with a free choice, loose salt and mineral. Uh, mm-hmm. And the key is choice and loose. So that's the key. And then, you know, we we recommend a natural source of salt and mineral. Most your salt, typical salt is kill-dried, it's bleached, it's dead. You know, it, it, we have a, I like to refer to it more as a living salt. It's actually from the desert that used to be the ocean way back when. Um, and I like to make that that point. It used to be the ocean. The ocean today uh, is full of mercury. So we don't necessarily use sea salt. We use a pristine ocean sea salt. It's actually mined from the ground. And then it has... Uh, natural minerals in it as well, and we actually have our own product that comes from different parts of the country, from Florida, from Tennessee, and from out west too, different prehistoric seabeds, which gives you all the minerals and so on. Depending on where somebody lives, would they have to change the type of minerals they feed according to where they live? Well, there are some parts of the country that have excess selenium but those are extremely small parts of the country it's very rare but you know if you live in one of those areas you'll know it if you have excess selenium in the ground Um, primarily though we have found that the key is well there's a supplement that we have called just add oats it's add to the oats it has the vitamins minerals and enzymes okay and then we add the fat that's what man knows you need to balance a horse balance oats and balance a horse, okay? And then what we use to kind of pick up the pieces for maybe what man hadn't even discovered yet is the free choice loose salt and mineral that we just talked about. And we call that red cow. But anyway, the the beauty of that is every mineral known to man is in there. It's not massive amounts, but it allows the horse to balance themselves in a free choice manner. So that's going to kind of um, pick up the pieces wherever the horse lives and probably provide even micronutrients that we haven't even discovered yet because everything that was in that ocean is still attached to those to that salt and minerals. Mm. Awesome what about feeding oats to foals? Would you recommend that? 
Not by itself. Oh yeah, I mean we we have um, again thousands of horses on oats and broodmare operations as well as stallions and and show horses and every every discipline you can imagine as far as showing, but every um, type of horse as well. But I don't recommend just oats alone to any horse. Uh, okay. They don't have enough calcium and if that's where the the red cow, the free choice loose salt and mineral is so great, it has, you know, a great source of calcium in there. And if you just feed a foal oats, he's not going to get the calcium that he needs. I mean, just as a for instance. Okay, that's why it's important to add it, you know, add the supplement to make them complete and then free choice so they can balance themselves out even more. Well, one of the questions I've had recently was about a full, actually 12-month-old filly with chronic diarrhea. So what okay. would you recommend for that, if you can do that? Sure. Well, diarrhea is definitely um, has a lot of potential causes, so I recommend ruling out the normal things for diarrhea, you know, a fecal exam just to make sure there's no parasites, uh, certainly. Uh, and then I'd, after you ruled out that, if it's been going on a long time or if the foal looks sick or anything else, I would, you know, consider some blood work too just to be sure that everything else is all right. So there's several things we do there. But from a nutritional viewpoint, um, I would obviously look at the feed. I'd get them off commercial feed, do just like we said as far as the diet goes. But then I'd also, uh, m most of our products have probiotics already in them, but there are, um, we have, um, and there are other products too, but we have a product that, that adds your probiotics and, and so on back into the food. Mm -hmm. Ours is not just probiotics, it's also prebiotics and also um, your enzymes. So it helps break the food down even more uh, so that it's easier on the gut. It's great for ulcers and everything else as far as the gut goes. So, you know, I'd be looking at the food itself. I'd change the food, get them off the commercial junk, get them on a good natural, I'm going to get them on the oats and so on. And then the, the uh, our product's called Gut Check. It's a natural um, prebiotics, probiotics, plus your enzymes to help them break the food down even more. And that's where I'd start. Okay. Okay. Well, and many do you times that, that alone. Do you want to talk about that long email I sent you um, okay. about the Lyme? Sure. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, you she, you emailed me a question earlier about you know what type of limes do I need to use? There's some kind of there's a little bit of confusion out there, and I certainly understand the confusion because you know there's a there's all different kinds of lime, uh, and what I'd like to do is tell you which kind to use. Let's talk a little bit about the options first. Okay. Um, there's hydrated lime and there's burnt lime. Okay, they are basically the same thing. Um, that is uh, limestone, uh, um, basically stone that is high in calcium carbonate that is essentially cooked, dried with high heat and that actually releases um, carbon dioxide and it creates um, just a calcium and an oxygen molecule together. 
Now, once those are exposed to air over time, uh, they pick up that carbon dioxide again from the air. So it's essentially calcium carbonate as the end result, like any other lime. The advantage of the burnt or the hydrated lime is that it is more quickly utilized by the ground. That's, that's the key factor there. It's more quickly utilized by the ground. The disadvantage is that, and, and I don't know that it's truly a disadvantage, but again, it's, you know, it's something that's processed. You know, it's not something that Mother Nature gave us um, because it is burnt, cooked, or whatever. But um, it is more readily utilized by the ground. So if you have a pasture that is not, um, that has weeds, for instance, that generally tells me the ground is sick and it needs something. And not commercial fertilizers, I wouldn't recommend that, but in almost all cases, you can recommend lime. You can never hurt a pasture by adding lime to it. Um, one other disadvantage to the hydrated lime or the burnt lime is that it's a little bit, a little bit more caustic um, it's when you first put it out. Not to say it would be harmful to the horses on the pasture, but it would be something that I want to be aware of. You know, how long has it been since it was actually cooked? You know, has it had time to take on more carbon dioxide so that it's calcium carbonate? Or is it still more caustic without, you know, from just having been cooked? Bottom line is it's, it is utilized more quickly. But the other type that is utilized a little more slowly but is a little um, more natural, if you would, is just plain old limestone or calcium carbonate. And then there's pelleted calcium carbonate or pelleted lime, same thing. Calcium carbonate itself is from the ground, the lime is from the ground, and the difference is what you need to try to do is find a good local source that has really fine, really soft limestone, you know, soft lime, because it varies. You know, here in our area, we have, um, you know, for the pastures and so on, there's one guy that gets his lime from a mine, gets his limestone from a mine. It's a real ground, really finely, so it would be more readily absorbed if it's real fine. And it's just a better product than some of the other products that your commercial places have, you know, your big, your bigger stores and so on. The key is it being very, very fine so that it's absorbed into the ground rather than being like a rock and not being absorbed into the ground. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now. So you'd recommend they can get it from Tennessee? It's, you, it's not, no. I mean, we have a great source here in Tennessee, but it's too, unless you own a trucking company, you don't want to be shipping lime across the country because it's going to cost you a whole lot more to ship it than it is the cost. So okay. There's lime all around the country. Just, you know, talk to farmers, talk to, you know, your local feed store. Where do they get their lime? You know, is it a good lime? Do they get good results with it? Uh, and, and so on. And most of them will have local lime that's good. Now, there's also pelleted lime. Now, pelleted lime is what we just talked about. 
it's the, the finely ground lime, okay? But then they've come back and they've pressed it back together in little pellets. They haven't cooked it back together like for seed pellets. It's just a pressing type pellet. Now the advantage of that is it doesn't blow away when you put it on the pasture. Because lime, good lime is so fine and so dusty that when you put it on, a lot of it's just going out into the air. And if you've got neighbors, that's not good. Right? Yeah, yeah. But that pelleted, right, but pelleted is actually, um, you know, it's just going to go into the ground, but not go into the ground. It's not going to blow away. And I really can't explain it, but there is something about pressing these molecules together that makes them more active. I, I really don't know, but I've got actually got some some friends doing some research right now as we speak on um, taking very finely ground minerals and compressing them back together. There's something frequency-wise there that actually gives you a better product that that produces more yield. So, um, and that and that's what I would recommend. Just the pellet, the pelleted lime, or just a good lime if that is not an issue. Very lime. good. So if you're going to plant a pasture, what grasses would you recommend? And do you have a percentage of grasses that you would say provide a good balance? Right. Well, let's say what you need to stay away from. Here in okay. the southeast, uh, fescue is very common. And yeah. it's one of the most hardy grasses if there are, that there is, period. Uh, fescue, toxic, the problem. Right? Absolutely. It, it's not not for your average horse, but if you have a broodmare operation or a mare that's in foal, the last thing you want her on is on fescue because fescue actually has, um, unless it's a fungus-free variety, which is genetically modified or engineered or hybrid or something, uh, they have fungus a fungus on the blades of grass that can cause a mare not to have milk when the baby's born or it can cause the placenta to be thick, and actually the fungus itself could cause the mare um, to not even conceive or to slip the foal, lose the foal, and so on. Uh, and one thing, by the way, that actually makes that fungus more toxic is potassium. Now, where do you get potassium from? Let's go back to the regular fertilizer. Fertilizer is nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. I try to stay away from your chemical fertilizers. For that very reason, you know what happened to all the other elements on the periodic chart. For instance, you know there's other things besides nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. Yeah, they make the plant grow nice, but they're just full of water. They're not full of nutrition. If a horse gets too much potassium, uh, not only is it toxic or makes the grass more deadly if it's fescue fungus, but it can also uh, potassium can cause abortion itself in your mares through the fungus or directly, and it can be deadly to the gut and change the pH of the gut, and a horse can die just from colic. Uh, I think it can, personally, I think one of the biggest causes of botulism is potassium or nitrogen toxicity that just changes the gut so rapidly, so fast, that these organisms, botulism organisms that are probably already in the gut become toxic. Now, how do you balance this excess potassium? 
with the free choice loose salt and mineral that we talked about so that they can have, when the grass changes, and it changes hour to hour to hour, when it changes, they can, the horse can balance it out with the big gulp of free choice loose salt and mineral. Simple way to look at it, but bottom line is they can't lick themselves lick fast enough from a block to balance those excesses in nitrogen, potassium, or whatever that they're exposed to. And and how, what, why a grass would have excess potassium in a short period of time would be, for instance, if it thinks it's going to die, it wants to bring water up into the plant and does that by using the potassium molecule in the ground from the fertilizer because it attracts more water molecules. Does that make sense? It does. It's very interesting, actually. Um, and that's why I say the single most healthy supplement or thing you can do for your horse is free choice loose salt and mineral. And I do recommend ours, a little commercial day. But, you know, it's, it's red cow is, it's so important to us that when we're, when there's a front moving in, a storm front moving in, we go pasture to pasture just to make sure that there's at least, you know, an inch or so in, in the bucket that's hanging on the fence post so that when the grass changes, the barometer changes, the grass changes, the horses can consume what they need when they need it. So what do you think about alfalfa? I don't have any problems with alfalfa. Uh, out west you've got, you know, some issues that, that there's a little critter that can get in there that can, you know, that can uh, actually kill the horse with just a few of them um, that are in it. It's actually a bug that gets in the alfalfa. Usually that's from alfalfa that's not put up properly. It's actually allowed to sit on the ground for a little bit before it's accumulated. So this particular bug only lives out west. It doesn't live out east where our uh, alfalfa would come from. So I would be cautious of that. But other than that, um, the caution with alfalfa is your horses need to be used to it. Uh, it's, it's a great source of protein. It's a great source of calcium. Um, more calcium out west than the hay grown out east. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely uh, something you just need to be more careful with. We generally will with foals, with uh, pregnant mares, with um, uh, you know, performance horses, sometimes we'll, we'll just a little flake of, of alfalfa extra. Okay, like a treat. Right, exactly. Now, I, I don't, we actually, on our farm here, uh, we do feed alfalfa almost entirely, but it's not as rich as the alfalfa out west. It's just not what I'd call hot as it is out there. Not yeah. the quality. Uh, so you, it depends on where you're from as far as the hay. You know, grass hay for the most part is is fine for any of them. Um, alfalfa is it's a great source of protein. It's a great source of calcium. And the reason there's more calcium in the in out, out west and east is we've just depleted our soils more out in the east. That's why the buffaloes moved west because there wasn't enough calcium in the east. To, to support their huge skeletal structure. That's why pheasants won't grow in the southeast because there's not enough calcium for the eggs. My goodness. So, yep. Wow. So if you live in the southeast, you for sure need to make sure they have 
free choice, loose salt. And then, of course, our, our red cow actually has a great source of calcium in it. That's one reason it's so uh, a great product. But but that's I found that just fascinating. That I don't even know where I got that information from, but it just makes so much sense you know, that our soils, it shows the importance of um, what we've done to our soils over the years. I know. Because it's tragic, we, isn't it? Oh, yeah, between the chemical fertilizers and the pesticides and herbicides. It's kind of a vicious cycle because you use the, the, the typical commercial fertilizers to make the grass and hay and everything grow, but it's just full of water and fertilized, not nutrition. The fertilized uh, over time kills the earth, makes the soil more compressed, more clay-like, which kills the earthworms, which prevents the oxygenation of the soil, which creates a sick soil, and then um, then you got to add herbicides and pesticides to kill the weeds, and it's just a vicious cycle. Uh, you asked me earlier. Let me answer. I got off track somehow because you asked me about what kind of grass. Yeah, that was my. I I had that question come up again. I wanted to ask you that while we're on yeah. that subject of pasture. So go ahead. Absolutely. Okay, what I like better than anything is just orchard grass and timothy. Um, okay. And usually, I mean, if I were making an ideal mix, it would be about 45% orchard grass and 45% timothy and 10% um, clover. Clover's optional. But, okay. Um, orchard grass and, 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 and timothy. Now, there are some other... Um, hybrid type grasses out there that people are getting tremendous results with that that might have fescue that does not have that is uh, endophyte free or fungus free. Uh, I'm not saying I wouldn't use those, um, but I just like orchard grass and timothy. Uh, in the southeast, uh, by, by the way, the reason fescue is an issue is of course the fungus, but also um, it grows wild. It's going to take over pretty much anything in our area. Uh, it's just a, a very hardy grass, but it's often used because it's very st it stabilizes the ground very quickly. It's a thick sod that um, you don't have the erosion and everything. So that's why it's frequently used in regular ground, not horse owners' ground, but regular ground. Right. And when you say clover, is there a specific type of clover? Because isn't there some clover that's toxic? There are some. Um, again, it's not the clover itself that's toxic. It's the fungus on the clover. And oh, we can okay. have a photosensitization from that fungus. In other words, they, uh, they are very sensitive to sun. But that would be from a liver situation combined with the fungus itself. It's a complicated issue there, but but um, again, that's optional as far as the clover. It's not really an issue in this part of the country. It may be in other parts of the country more, but timothy and orchard grass is really what I like. There's a grass out there, a Bermuda-type grass called world fever, that uh, if you have a small pasture, you know, a lot of horses in a smaller area, this grass grows like crazy. Uh, again, it is a uh, it's a hybrid type grass, but it it's pretty hardy in your sandy type soils. Um, some people are using it. Uh, mine don't particularly. I actually did a test plot here. Mine don't particularly like it, 
but you don't have as much mud in the lot as you would with the other grasses. It just stays there. Um, um, while we're talking about Bermuda, that would be a hay that would have more tendency for colic, by the way. Oh, okay. Even more so, in my opinion, than alfalfa. Uh, in the southeast, they have peanut hay, they have a lot of um, Bermuda hay, but the reason is it has a real fine blade and it would have more of a tendency for impaction. Uh, that's the Bermuda. Okay. And pe peanut hay, I know they use it a lot in the southeast, but I'm really... Peanut hay? Yeah, they actually use it. Oh. And it kind of bothers me because they just use so much doggone pesticides and herbicides on peanuts, but I mean, people get good results with it, so I can't say oh. not to use it from a, you know, a, a holistic viewpoint. Um would have to... Um, yeah, caution. that doesn't sound very same way with <laughs> The same way with beet pulp. That's very common. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misconceptions about beet pulp. Um, I can't tell you how many people that I talk to that use beet pulp um, on a regular basis. And the thing about beet pulp is it doesn't have any nutrition except fiber. I mean, right. And, it's used you know, a lot for senior horses to put on weight. And there's no nutrition there. Makes no sense to me. You know, you don't need this fiber to put on weight. You know, a better quality hay would be much cheaper and better in the long run. And besides, again, you know, um, it's a byproduct of a root. A root tends to accumulate more pesticides, herbicides, and so on than the rest of the plant. Uh, and other type plants, and um, from what I understand, they use quite a bit of pesticides and herbicides on beets, plus beets are sugar. Beets are one of the highest So I guess that's... It's very commonly used, though. Oh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's why they're using it in these older horses, uh, you know, but again, it's just sugar. You know, you're much better off to use a good fat source, the oil so to speak, rather than um, sugar. The sugar, the problem with sugar is just like us. You know, a lot of people get up and have a donut for breakfast or something. Or, yeah. Um, shoots the sugar straight up. When right. the sugar goes up, all this insulin's produced to handle the sugar, and insulin's deadly to the body. Most people think insulin's good for the body. It's actually what kills us, probably, according to some people out there, researchers, it's actually used as an aging marker. In other words, the higher the resting insulin, the shorter the lifespan. So you don't want a lot of insulin produced in the body. So a sugar spike is the last thing you want, but also a sugar low that follows is the last thing you want because then you have cortisol produced. You know, your flight or fight organ, the adrenal glands produce. Mm, yeah, adrenaline. Cortisol. Exactly. Well, I think the re the reason they use it is because they can soak it. It's easy for older horses that have teeth issues to eat, and it's cheap. Yeah, yep, you're yeah. right. Absolutely. Well, well Dr. Hayden, we've only got about 10 minutes left, and I did want to cover one thing that comes up a lot, and that is worming your horse. Okay. And one of the big biggest questions I see is, are commercial warmers really that bad, and how often should we worm our horses? Well, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I can't say that commercial warmers are really that bad. 
But again, it's a chemical, and anything that you put in the body that's foreign, there's some consequence. Um, Side effect. Right, exactly. And so the misconception about deworming or worms in general is that all horses have worms. And the truth is they don't all have worms. The truth is they're all exposed to worms, but they don't all have worms. And it's kind of like, I like to use this analogy sometimes, it's just because like we're all exposed to the flu today, we're not all going to come down with the flu, and just because we're exposed to it, we're not going to go home and take antibiotics today. Exactly. A lot of doctors prescribe antibiotics frequently for viruses and things like that, but we've result that's resulted in these staph organisms that nothing's killing today. No antibiotics are working, in other words, for them. The right. same way with chemical dewormers. We have used them so much that there are resistant species that are being developed, just like resistant staph, necessarily resistant staph. There are superworms, in other words. And your parasitologists, your leading parasitologists, are recommending that you just don't indiscriminately deworm anymore. In other words, don't deworm based on the calendar like we got in the habit of doing for so long. Because that's what we've been told. You know, rotate the dewormers, change the dewormers every two months. Because of the resistance that developed to certain dewormers, and then just do it because the calendar says so. That's the wrong thing to do. It's what the drug companies want you to do. That's what most veterinarians are still going to tell you what to do. But it's not what your parasitologists are telling you what to do. In fact, your parasitologists are like it. I just talked to about six months ago the veterinarian that's in charge of the University of Tennessee and the veterinary school there. And their parasitologists are trying to get them off of just the counter rotation type deworming. Parasitology department's different than the vet school. Vet school is more influenced from the drug companies. Parasitologists are more influenced from what they see. And what they're seeing is resistant species that are being developed, like in goats. Goats, there's hardly anything that even works for goats anymore because they're so sensitive. You know, they're, they have so many resistant species now that none of your chemical dewormers, for the most part, none that I know of, even work. I had a parasitologist from um, uh, University of Kentucky call me. This was several years ago because he had their goat herd. He said, if we don't find something that works in our goat herd, goat herd we're not going to have any goats because nothing's working. And he'd heard that our product, we have a natural one that was working. But does that make sense, what I'm Absolutely. talking about? Absolutely. Oh, and yeah. So what, the answer is simple. It's less convenient than just giving a dewormer every two or three months. But in the long run, it saves money. And it and you're not you know putting a chemical in the body, and uh, it's as simple as just doing a fecal exam. You know, take a, a spoonful of manure and take it to your veterinarian, let him check it. Unfortunately, most veterinarians still look at you like you're nuts if you ask them to do it. But a lot more now are. When I first started preaching this back in the late 90s, 
you know, I was the nut. Now there's more people <laughs> that are other veterans that are doing it. <laughs> uh, that's right, more nuts. But it's, yeah. it's, it, it takes a little more time. It's real difficult if you have a big herd. But I promise you, if you have a, a big herd, you're going to have some horses that have worms and some that don't. And, and uh, like your older horses, they're usually resistant to parasites. They don't have issues. Um, you know, eight, ten, nine, uh, eight, nine, ten, and older, uh, unless they have poor health. But if they have poor health and you're giving them a dewormer, well, you're putting something else in their body that they got to take care of. So it's, so it's kind of like shooting them in the foot. You know, let's work on their immune system. Let's build their immune system. Let's actually, you know, boost them up instead of just putting something else in there that they have to take care of. Yeah. So we recommend fecals, and for an adult horse, we recommend at least. To start with, four times a year. If you have a positive, don't wait, you know, till the next quarter. You know, check them in a couple months to make sure that they're at least low, not necessarily totally clean. That's another issue. They um, they probably have to have some parasite to develop the resistance issue. Where you really get into an issue, or where you really need to be more concerned, is with your younger stock. You know, less than less than three years old. Your ascarids, your roundworms can cause impaction, things like that. So you just you, know, you want to make sure they there's just not an issue there. And if you have a positive follow-up with another fecal, to make sure you've taken care of it and so on and so forth. Regardless of what you're using, though, chemicals or otherwise, you need to do fecal because um, there are so many resistant strains of parasites. Now, someone just told me that adult horses don't even get roundworms. Is that true? Well, adult horses are much less likely to have roundworms. It doesn't mean they can't get them, but much, much less likely to have roundworms. Okay. So once you do the fecals, then what? Well, one, if you have a positive, then, of course, you treat them. Um, hopefully, you'll look at our product. Um, but you treat them, and then I like to check them again in three weeks to see, you know, what the make sure the numbers are at least lowered or mm -hmm. um, way low. Uh, and then if they're still way high positive for whatever reason, a resistance strain or whatever, then treat them again, and that more effectively breaks the life cycle. These horses that have the resistance strains, you might need to do a couple days in a row, depending on the product. You know, there's some power pack, I think, is a trademark name out there that they have like five days in a row of the chemical product. Well, that's because of all these resistant species. Uh, um, I don't want to get into brand names and so on, but you just need to follow up to make sure that they're lowered numbers or negative. Right. And not, not wait six, eight months if you have a positive to check them again, and especially with your younger stock. Your older horses, it's not that much, not as much of an issue, and you will find many older horses just don't even have worms. Well, that's really good. We've got five minutes, four minutes left, so I have one more question, right. and that was, what would you recommend for an older horse that would have trouble chewing oats? I just soak the oats overnight. Just put them in water, add a little water to them. Of course, the oil. That we talked about is going to soften them too. You can add the oil the night before, um, okay. or add the oil in a little water, and they break them down fine. Same way with the hay. If you have to, you know, soak. Don't don't just literally soak the hay. Just add some moisture to it. You soak it. You're going to be taking the nutrients out of the hay too. Yeah. Well, a lot of people do soak their hay. And I know. 
and I know. They're, and they're taking the sugar out, and you know, which is fine. But this, but it's a pain in the neck for one thing. And honestly, I know there's a lot of people out there that recommend or talk about the sugar issue with hay and grass. That just hasn't been a problem for us. You know, we can fix these situations with metabolic issues, insulin resistance, and so on without paying too much attention or paying any attention at all to the hay, except the stuff we've already talked about. Certainly not soaking and so on. When you get the fats right, you get the vitamins, minerals, you get the salt and, and uh, free choice minerals right, it's just the hay is just generally not an issue. Um, by the way, we do have a website called whattofeedyourhorse.com. Okay, I'm writing that down. Yep, whattofeedyourhorse.com. Yep, and then our regular website is naturalhorsefed.com. Very good. Well, Dr. Dan, Dan, it's been wonderful having you here. I told you it would go fast. It, it's been great. I really appreciate it. You know, I just get so excited about, um, about the <laughs> yeah. results we making these horses healthier. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you because, you know, it's pretty rare to find a vet, I think, that has all the knowledge that you do and is in agreement on a lot of this natural and holistic stuff. So I think it's wonderful. Maybe sometime I can tell you why I've, why and how I've come to where I am. I would love to do that. And I'd you love to have you on another show, too. be great. Okay, okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And be sure to tune in next time. Until then... This is DC from Natural Horse Network. Goodbye.